Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the discussion series in How Hebel on Ufa, Burning Futures, on Ecologies of Existence, a series that examines more than human relations of the social with organic and inorganic ecosystems from a planetary perspective. This is the second edition of Burning Futures that does not take place in the theater as a live discussion but appears solely as a podcast. This time, we will listen to Patricia Reed's approach to the term planetarity as a demand for a perspectival shift to coexistence in order to be able to access different scales of reality, including more than human interdependencies. How does planetarity recondition our understanding of the local? How do picturings of the human change when upheld relationally? And how are linkages to be built between scientific knowledge and socio-political responsibilities? Reed's lecture is followed by a discussion with the curators of the series, Margarita Tsomu and Maximilian Haas. Hello and welcome in the name of Hau Hemlam Ufa to the Burning Future podcast. Today with Patricia Reed on coexistence, planetarity and uncertainty. In ecological discourse and environmental politics, the planet represents the ultimate yet endangered good, the totality of organic and inorganic living conditions for humans and other critters on the verge of irreversible destruction. Earth system sciences describe the planet as a complex and dynamic system of interconnected substances and processes in constant metabolism. Since the famous photo taken from the Apollo spacecraft in 1972, it has been seen as a blue marble hanging in a dark and empty, indifferent space. The picture has come to figure both the bounded completeness and the precarity or vulnerability of spaceship Earth. Artist, writer and designer Patricia Reed, however, proposed to use the term planetarity as something more than the mere sum of earthly interwoven substances and processes or the ideal image of a free-floating sphere. She directs the attention to the diverse practices, conceptual, scientific, technological, sociopolitical, through which planetarity becomes intelligible as a multidimensional, minutely knitted web of localities co-shaped by the political practice and the theoretical self-understanding of humans. Thus, for Patricia, the planetary is not only an object of scientific knowing, but also subject to the manifest know-how of coexistence. A coexistence that has to be thought of as localized and situated, and that concerns more than human relations. Through the ecological crisis present and to come, as well as through anthropocentric events, such as the current corona crisis, the precarity of these relations become increasingly perceptible. They reveal the formal equilibrium of the bounded sphere as an utter misconception of the complex and dynamic network of existences that form its substance. In her artistic and theoretical work, Patricia Reed has dealt with diverse issues such as feminist technoscience, situated knowledge practices, entanglement and systems of care, xenofeminism, architecture and computation, aesthetics and politics. In her recent work, the ecological crisis are an important subject of these discussions. And we are very happy, Patricia, that uh, you're here and we are curious to hear your lecture. Thank you, Margarita, and thank you, Max. It's really a pleasure to be part of your series. And um, But let me start with perhaps a few personal remarks. Um, so I think it would be a bit delusional to simply perform on this podcast as if everything was okay. Um, is not, and frankly for most, it was not. It would be delusional to carry on as if the world as we have known it 
is simply in a holding pattern before returning to its familiar state. It would be disingenuous to pretend that the reflections I'll be sharing are done so from a place of fully-throated, definitive confidence. And yet, as we see many lionized philosophers sprint out of the blocks, eager to reinforce their canonical frameworks of thought, perhaps at this moment of historical turbulence, intellectual vulnerability is not such a bad thing after all. If the situation is to be transformative in an enduring way on both personal and socio-political levels, it needs time, thought, emotional and intellectual humility to allow it to work back upon us. Nonetheless, we have to depart from somewhere with what is situationally at hand. And one certain diagnosis we can move from is to say that any so-called promise of returning to a familiar world of returning to normal is nothing less than an endorsement of existing material and normative harms, as well as structural inequities that fashion a world that is inhospitable for most. Not to mention a ravenous appetite for the continued devouring of the terrestrial sphere that devastates the very support conditions for human life. So as multiple and compounded symptoms of this current situation burst the pipes in plain sight, this is what Walter Benjamin would call a critical moment. For him, a critical moment is when the preservation of normality is understood as a threat. Now this is notable since the threat is not something unknown or something external to the world that sort of unexpectedly and menacingly arrives like an unpredictable accident. The threat is rather the familiar continuity of a given socio-political condition. So critical moments make demands upon us to overcome such threats by way of discontinuity from the present state of affairs. And to ignore the call of such a demand, whether through hubris or willful ignorance, is what amounts to catastrophe for Benjamin. For him, a catastrophe is a missed opportunity more specifically, a missed historical opportunity. So the catastrophic lies in remaining fundamentally unchanged, unlearned, and unmoved by critical moments, be they epistemic, environmental, economic, and or socionormative, and of course often in combinations such as we find in our own critical moment. So it's in this way I don't think it is callous nor uncaring to be conjuring this type of picture of opportunity at this time. But of course, let's not be naive. There are plenty of competing genres of discontinuity at stake in the midst of this turbulence. And opportunities are not something simply to be waited for. They must be constructed, materially, effectively, and conceptually. The tasks ahead are immense. It is hardly the time to withdraw into the narrations of sheer doom, narrations that do little more than extend tendencies of the present into a future state, as if they are unchangeable. While those narrations may be probable, they are not necessary. And if theory is to play any sort of humble, supporting role within such a conceptual opportunity enabling, it must imaginally occupy this gap. So with that said, I think it's useful to sort of track where we are in this wonderful series, um, Burning Futures, to get a picture of what's been discussed so far. So the series started with themes of extinction, uh, followed by discussions on degrowth and the sort of general relationship between ecology and economy. And the last session covered the sort of increasing contact with pathogens as a result of human activities that we're acutely dealing with in the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. So what I think brings all of these specific angles into a common, albeit difficult, picture is planetarity. The term planetarity was first used by Gayatri Spivak in 1997 as a way to address the problem of planet talk, in her words, in environmentalism, which, as she saw it, tended to emphasize a picture of Earth as a continuous natural space rather than a discreetly political space. So for Spivak, planetarity is more than a call for custodianship of the Earth, which she sees as an extension of globalizing logics. 
It is a space in the species of alterity, in her words, because it surpasses human critical cognition. With planetarity, Spivak asks of us to imagine ourselves as planetary subjects for whom this radically other space of life is merely on loan to us. Rather than continuing to imagine ourselves as globalizing agents who are masterfully in control over the Earth. So while I don't endorse every aspect of Spivak's definition, what I think is crucial to uphold in it today is the need for a paradigmatic perspectival shift of human self-understanding in relation to nature through which other configurations of inhabiting the Earth can be realized. Now, from an Earth system science perspective, the planetary evokes the entanglement and feedback dynamics between an array of energetic and material systems, like the chemical, geological, biological, atmospheric, coupled with human social impacts within these systems. And of course, vice versa, namely the effects of those non-human systems upon human life forms. Within this domain, the planetary comes into focus from a combination of ecological and climactic sensing and measuring apparatuses that are assembled into models of earthly dynamics, from atmospheric particles to animal migration patterns to the mapping of deforestation and the melting of permafrost regions, to mention a few. In his wonderful book on comparative planetology, Lukas Likavchan highlights for us that within Earth system science, understanding the planetary is dependent on stitching together partial abstractions from several scientific subdisciplines to produce a picture of a coherent whole, even if this whole is constantly being revised. So just as the microscope made the realm of bacteria intelligible to human perception, even if bacteria pre-existed the invention of the tool, so too can we say that the planetary only becomes intelligible as an entity due to an aggregation of Earth-sensing devices that allow it to be seen and studied as a whole, even when that whole will never be perfect or definitive. This modeling of the whole will always be incomplete and in that way uncertain, and this is an important point uh, to which we'll return a bit later. What is noteworthy in this perspective on the planetary is that while it does entail a magnitude of modeling complexity that is incredibly daunting for human minds, and this is a real problem, the planetary is not treated as utterly unthinkable or entirely unknowable as it is for Spivak. However, if the planetary is only understood in this totalizing or exclusively scientific way, the historical threat of repeating imperial and colonial violence under the premise of managing and optimizing the earth for some populations of human life cannot be ignored, as Jennifer Gabries has poignantly written about. There are specific human historical forces that have contributed to the situation we find ourselves in, namely gaping wealth inequality, climate emergency, and now a pandemic, That cannot be conveniently brushed aside by jumping purely to a distant or generalizing picture of our situation. Nothing captures this tendency better than the Anthropos of the Anthropocene, as Antonia Mayaka had noted in the first event, since the term quickly jumps to a species scale of humanity, while disavowing the regional specificity of human populations, um, specifically us here in Europe, largely responsible for the planetary consequences we live with today. So that is to say the, the Anthropocene is historical at a geological level, while it is uh, you know, specifically socially ahistorical uh, at the diverse level of human practices. Such a separation between categories of reality echoes the distinction between what Wilfred Sellers called scientific images, or abstract, counterintuitive understandings of the world that often escape human experience, like the fact that we're composed of atoms, and manifest images, or the way lived uh, experiential reality plays out uh, and is available to our senses. With no hierarchy between the two images, Seller envisioned the task of philosophy as understanding how things in the world, uh, in the broadest sense possible, hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. And for him, that task is dependent on articulating a stereoscopy between scientific and manifest images. 
When we submit this principle of theoretical stereoscopy to a dose of Marxian pragmatics, we could then say that the task is not only to understand how scientific and manifest images hang together, but how to change and be changed by that stereoscopic relationship. So what I'm suggesting is that scientific images of planetary modelings are an invaluable achievement and are necessary to better understand our condition at a distance. Yet as propositional forms of knowledge, they offer no direct guidance as to how manifest existence hangs in relation to it. So to put it simply, we may know of climate emergency, but that does not directly translate into know-how at the level of localized or situated life activities. Now this emphasis on know-how, of course, we can draw from the broad legacy of feminist epistemologies. So the planetary, from an exclusively scientific perspective, does little to disturb the social-historical structures of globalization. So if the planetary is not merely to be a continuation of globalized society, it requires transformative manifest localization. And the term that gestures to this stereoscopic demand is planetarity. Planetarity can be seen as indexing a struggle for new social histories that are discontinuous from those under globalizing logics. It is a demand not simply to know of the concept of planetarity, but to learn how to coexist in the consequences of that concept. It's not enough to say planetarity marks a political, ethical, or aesthetic discontinuity from globalization without affirming how it is qualitatively different. We can begin by saying that uh, planetarity is a space of possibility that is cracked open by an epistemic determination or propositional knowledge, yet one that is operationally, socially, and historically indeterminate in the wake of that determination or know-how. This is why seeking answers for this you know, unsettling indeterminacy exclusively based on scientific or techno-solutions is never sufficient like the preservation of the status quo economic tendencies at work within green capitalism, for instance. It's rather because of the indeterminate possibility space cracked open by planetarity that political, ethical, and aesthetic interventions need to manifest claims within it and not on it in transformative, discontinuous ways. So by saying we are within planetarity evokes an embedded spatiotemporal context, so not a top-down view. And in turn, that embeddedness entails a condition of positioning or being situated somewhere, somewhen, by some body or entity. So the way we describe this spatiotemporal context is important since it generates a frame of reference for orientation that affects how being situated is understood and acted upon in socially consequential ways. There are two complementary descriptions of spatial transformation within the condition of planetarity I'd like to briefly put forth. So the first comes from Sylvia Winter, who noted that for the first time in human history as, quote, post-nuclear creatures, end quote, now confronting climate emergency, humanity is faced with the demand to coexist in an environment in common. This does not mean, however, that environments nor the human experience of them is common, or that all humans face the same degree of threat. But it is to say that treating these risks and harms in atomized ways is no longer possible. And the second spatializing description uh, is a shift from a more commonly used term of planetary scale which to my mind, uh, you know, tends to bend towards an exclusively totalizing and cognitively overwhelming view of our condition. When we hear planetary scale, we can only imagine sheer massiveness. So I propose rather planetary dimensionality, since it captures nested and multiple scales of life, as well as emphasizing the composition of the holistic scale as produced by multiplied tangents of relation between human non-humans, and geomaterial forces from the bottom up. So spatially, planetarity places prominence on the building up of scalar complexity from the proliferations of interrelations, rather than only gazing from a distant totality as such. 
So to summarize, planetarity demands the construction of frames of reference to provide orientation for an environment in common, yet one that is non-homogeneous, so as to accommodate localized distinctions. And by emphasizing the constitutive hyper-entanglement of planetarity, we place focus on relations, so as to build other pictures of agency and accountability within this multidimensional space of an environment in common. And I think there's some kinship here with Rob Wallace's last podcast who affirmed the need to think of uh, relational geographies or geographies in relation, I don't recall the exact formulation, when we're really trying to adequately understand the pandemic, uh, where it just makes no sense to, to figure cities as self-contained entities. So taken together, and to put it very succinctly, I think we could say that it shifts the perspectival emphasis from existence to coexistence, or at least that's my claim. So how would this subtle shift uh, from existence to coexistence, right, of just merely adding a prefix, how could that be described as significant? Well, coexistence is not a new word, and things already coexist. I think it's useful to describe the situation of our globalized condition as the result of an historic consequence of emphasizing existence over coexistence. This conceptual tendency is not universal, of course, but has yielded hegemonic ramifications that underwrite material, normative, and institutionalized structures that work to reinforce and naturalize this perspectival position privileging singular existence. Specifically, we can see this in the structuring logic of private existential wealth accumulation, whatever the cost to social and environmental life, a picturing of the human motivated only by securing its own existential material wants, as Sylvia Winters noted, and as Adam Smith's model of political economy depended on, as if being a natural fact. We see this as well in uh, liberal governance design, where rights and responsibilities are located at the scale of individual existence, including the self-responsabilization for any hardship like poverty and mental illness. All of these are examples of this initial perspectival privileging of existence over coexistence. I think you could even argue that this tendency uh, happens even at the level of economic pricing, since the coexistence of negative externalities inherent to any form of production or service is almost never factored in alongside the existence of a priced commodity. So at root in this emphasizing of existence over coexistence, is a fundamental assumption that the basic unit constitutive of any social structure, as Ben Bratton has noted, is the human individual. The perspectival shift induced by emphasizing coexistence privileges, rather, vectors of relation, which not only alter privatized uh, conceptions of human selfhood, but additionally afford non-human and biospheric interrelations to the point that one may even begin to speculate on something like the rights of relations within a perspectival framework, responsive to hyper-entangled conditions of planetarity. Additionally of note is that an emphasis on constitutive relationality, implied by co-existential frames of reference, seems to offer a degree of navigational traction to the claim of decentered humanness implied by planetarity but which until now has only been announced in abstract propositional form, with little guidance on how this decenteredness manifests in actionable practice. So seeing as planetarity refers to this stereoscopy between the total scale of Earth systems and the differential scale of manifest social life, it is a condition of coexistence demanding consideration in both continuous and discrete ways right? Local and global, if you want. If planetarity seeks to index a perspectival shift in both human self-understanding and human-Earth relationships, the social and aesthetic engagement with planetarity needs to invent ways in which, to quote theorist Nick Hood, human capacities of sensation could grasp the different dimensions of reality in a manner that is meaningful to human existence, end quote. To be clear, this problem of meaning is not about simplifying planetarity down to the immediate comforts of our human perceptual system as it is currently conditioned. To the contrary, it is about asking how some of our very intuitions and regimes of common sense are transformed through the consequences of planetarity, and how we decidedly, that is collectively and politically, 
narrate the significance of them. Is about learning how to see uh, naturalized spatial, linguistic, and representational frames of reference as contingent and incomplete, and therefore subject to transformation, bit by bit. It is about rigorously grappling with a critical moment where existing intuitions may no longer be relevant, and in many ways, it is about proving the irrelevance of existing frames of reference that govern relationships to ourselves, each other, and the earth in a threatening way. It is not about fetishizing the disorientation of indeterminacy, but seeing in it the possibility for constructing collective opportunity. So the last brief point I'd like to make uh, just before we get into our discussion uh, more informally is that it is crucial to acknowledge, one can't just ignore this, that in, just as in any complex system, uh, the proliferation of, of relations yields more uncertainty as to causal forces and effects. The condition of planetarity cannot ignore the presence of uncertainty, both with regards to risks, for which the politicization of planetarity needs to invent ways to co-existentially socialize the asymmetric distribution of risks and accountability, especially as it relates to climate emergencies, as well as uncertainty with regards to the always incomplete picture of a scientific or systems perspective that is constantly undergoing revision and for which said uncertainty has been mobilized as an excuse for politically self-serving inactivity, as observed by uh, Wendy Chun. Chun points out the ongoing debates about climate change, for example, persist not because of scientific disagreement, but because of the false popular notion that scientific issues can attain a state of absolute certainty. And that is to, uh, to properly understand an issue requires this absolute certainty. So on a side note, during this pandemic, we've probably had more popular media interviews with epidemiologists who are usually, you know, and rightfully cautious to make any grand um, comforting pronouncements. Um, so on the one hand, that you know, increased visibility and let's say modesty uh, on display may help change this popular perspective. Um, on the other hand, um, Chun further notes the strategic instrumentalization of uncertainty um, by the right to fuel public doubt and inaction on the issue, the issue of climate change, uh, in a perverse deployment of critical reasoning, as if there will ever be a total resolution. The argument Chun puts forth, and while it continues to be relevant, is the need to tackle the stagnating correlation between uncertainty and inaction, asserting the urgency to learn how to responsibly transform uncertainty and risk into drivers for activity, or certainly as motors of orientation for activity. Central to her argument is the role of belief. Now, this is not in a theological leap of faith sense, but in the inferentialist sense, because such risky objects of concern, such as the planetary, they prohibit a connection between knowledge and experience. Ultimately, what this politicization of risk entails is a stronger relationship between theory and practice, where an abstract modeling and hypothetical reasoning need to gain social and libidinal purchase in order to translate into orientational traction. When our existing socioeconomic world configuration can itself be modeled as a threat, its dogmatic historical continuity amounts to an imminent uncaring for futural risks, as well as the reciprocal demands for transformation those risks ought to catalyze in the here and now. Catastrophe as missed opportunity is the historical receipt of this uncaring. So learning how to care about and how to care for risks in their multidimensional spatiality is an important first step for the enablement of coexistential opportunity within the planetary. So I look forward to um, discussing with you, Max and Margarita. Thank you, Patricia, for this wonderful development um, of how we can approach the term planetarity today. And for me, it was very important uh, to read and hear your lecture because, of course, this term planetarity is about to establish itself uh, in ecological philosophy and the scientific discourses along with it, but also in activist discourse. Some people even speak about a planetary turn. So if you allow me, I would 
take it from the beginning um, uh, of your lecture and really ask some basic things about the term in order for us to understand why it is so attractive to use actually a term like planetarity today. And of course, you refer to different schemes of planetarity throughout your lecture, but in all of them, you point out that there is a difference to the global or to globality. So in which sense are global relationalities different than planetary ones? Right. I mean, that's a huge question. But if I can just hook on to globalization, perhaps, uh, because I think uh, when we usually name globalization, what we are referring to is what you quake called, you know, like unilateral globalization. So by this, it means it's not even really global. It's like the inflation of a <laughs> Euro homo economicus that just happens to be a massively influential scale. And, you know, certain certain tendencies at work in globalization, so like a kind of technocratic economic infrastructure that strikes me as a homogenizing view of spatiality, right? Like everything has to conform to that transactional logic. So the space is sort of designed as a transactional space. And I think like one key difference within this schema is what is the picture of the human uh, within these two schemas? So if you have a unilateral globalizing human, this is still coming out of the lineage of a European like philosophical humanist tradition. You could just simply say that in that tradition you have a human is imagined where it's a figure split from the ground that it you know walks walks on. And in that conceptual configuration, which maybe sounds abstract and useless, but if you think about it, it gives you a sort of self-image that A, you are separate from the ground, B, you're the agent and the ground is passive, and C, that whatever's in that ground is just there for your personal resourceful needs to fulfill your material desires, and, and it's kind of this infinite passive resource to nourish human ambitions. So in the planetary version of humanness, the human is no longer masterfully an agent, uh, the earth is no longer a passive entity, the human is kind of subject to geological forces as much as it's, you know, imbricated in them. So these are very different self-conceptions that I think are evocative of some important differences. And again, I think like one of the important um, criticisms of, of globalization is, yes, you're right, it's got a lot of relations in that way. It's similar to planetarity. Um, but those relations are put in place under very specific economic needs, right? The the kind of pursuit of economic growth as glory, as the primary motivating force to facilitate transactional space. Because what you were uh, just developing, you were saying the human is something separate from the earth, or we think of the human not as the only center in the planetary perspective. Of course, you were describing complete other relations than uh, globalized financial markets, right? What kind of relations are there, which also is connected to the question of coexistence? Relations is, it is a term that has to be politicized. It's not a term that in itself, you know, would describe... This new perspective that, like, who is deciding on what kind of relations are going to be in place, in which conditions? Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think, um, and again, not to fall into the romanticization, oh, we're all connected, and that's going to be because I think that was the that was the sales pitch of globalization, right? That was the whole like 1960s, like it's a small world. Um, look, we're all connected. That was the early internet myth, like global village. Those kind of myths of smallness that all these things bring us together in some kind of space of intimacy. It's like, no, you're doing the opposite. The more you create connections, the higher dimensional space you create. And that, of course, that myth of smallness was, you know, designed from a very particular regional perspective. So, of course, if you wanted to be part of that global village, you would have to conform precisely to those things. So another important quality of planetarity to emphasize is that um, whereas the globalization ethos, it comes from a non-place, let's say. I mean, this is a kind of glissant uh, perspective. Um, and planetarity absolutely has to recognize that it doesn't come from no place. Without capitulating the big hole, like it's not about fetishizing the local, but it's also about saying, well, we also don't start from nowhere. Maybe on that note, 
You also mentioned briefly in your talk a concept of the rights of relations. And I wonder if you could expand a bit more on this. So which kinds of relations have rights and in which way are they applied or put into practice? No, it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked, but it's also the like, uh, it's a really new idea. So I don't really have a substantial answer to you. I was trying to use it as a speculative idea, as if we would shift from a liberalist perspective of putting all the rights and responsibilities on the individual, then what would be the rights of relation? And I think it could be quite productive to think about a difference between co-occurrence, association and relation. Yes, there's probably some similarities, but they probably have to be specified, let's say. But I, I would say that a lot of the visual tropes that we operate with today, like these kind of mappings that we typically use, they do bend sometimes towards this associative picture without a semantic qualification. And I think that's where you could start. If you had to map that sort of politicization of the relation, it would have to happen there on the quality of those relations. Absolutely. You also criticize that there is a danger that if we think of planetarity as something total, And in graspable, we actually lose that we have to find a way of how to coexist. And this coexisting is localized, situated, and there you do a distinction between knowledge, as the knowledge that comes from looking at the planet from this scientific octorial perspective of looking from far away, and looking at the planet as a, a totality, and experience. And for me, all of it, the localized, the situatedness, the knowledge versus experience, sounded like terms and uh, frames of thinking we have been using in feminist discourse. So for me, the way you describe the relations that we would need to think of from the perspective of planetarity, they sounded very feminist. Do you see it also like that? Or where would feminism find a place in the scheme of planetarity? No, I mean, absolutely. There's a, there's a total influence of the legacy. Uh, you know, I'm speaking broadly, the broad legacy of feminist epistemology. So, you know, of course, there's not one feminist epistemology, but let's say there has been a focus on, you know, marking that parity between uh, propositional knowledge and knowing how you know, which are knowledge practices that were typically uh, deprivileged, not thought of as higher standard as propositional knowledge. And then two other important angles would be, of course, this extension of the situated knowledge claim from Haraway and the question of uh, a figure like Jose Bayadotti, who's like, yeah, what are your politics of location? So these are like very long-standing <laughs> things. I think with the situated knowledge, which I've done the most work on is to say that you cannot have situated, I'll start simply, you cannot have situated knowledges without a site. Situated knowledge depends on having a site, which means that we have to understand what a site is. A site is like, uh, it conforms to a certain like geometrical proposition in the sense that there would be something presumably that is part of the site and something that is not part of the site, just as we would say, this is local and this is not local. But we never really describe what that threshold is. If I go to meet you for a beer, I don't say I'll meet you at the local. And we both kind of get heuristically what we mean. But actually, there's a lot of geometric abstractions at work in there that we understand it in the kind of similar way. And so my claim is that the scale of planetarity, it doesn't make the local irrelevant, which is, I think, that's the, that's the fear, is that people are like, oh, but it's going to make it real. I'm like, no, but it transforms. It does transform. So it sounds to me as if planetarity needs to be a form of practice for you? Would you formulate it like this? Absolutely. It needs to be practicable. <laughs> it needs to have a pragmatics behind it. I mean, of course, all of these are speculative, you know, um, but like what would be, if you have a self-picture of the human that self-understands itself, not as an atomized individual free will, well, okay, we, I mean, we're not going to get into the free will debate, but not in this privatized sense, because I think that's generally how we picture ourselves or we behave that way in this cultural context. What are the consequences of undergoing those transformations? And I think the work of somebody like Sylvia Winter is really important on that point because she talks about you know, genre, she calls them genres of being human. So she talks about how important these are as primary frames of reference 
from which institutional, economic, social, and epistemic orders derive in its likeness. And so basically, it's a kind of frame of reference that that justifies, even if it's not just, right, uh, but it justifies the existence of things in a certain way. So for instance, you know, the picture of the human that I mentioned in the lecture, where it's only motivated by its own selfish needs and not the broader picture. Well, of course, if you have that as the frame of reference, then a lot of our structures absolutely make sense. Competition makes sense. All of these things make sense. So when I say justify, it doesn't mean just. And the incredible ambition of her work is to basically call for, you know, a paradigm shift that is a kind of genre of being human made to the measure of the planetary. And so her work on specifically the, the role, these idealizations of humanness, uh, the way that they all these kind of other structures cascade out of them and revolve around them is really, really important, I think, right now. I'd like to go back to the relation between scientific images and manifest images of planetarity in connection with political activism. So is there only a one-way street from knowing things to putting them into practice? Or are there also repercussions of political practice on the sciences? So I guess the question is, or maybe it's rather two questions, can political action in terms of a certain environmental activism play a role in the translation or the mediation between scientific images of planetarity and manifest images? So is this a way of Is political um, activism a way of connecting the two? And if so, don't we then follow a very human-centered approach where collective human practice kind of translates scientific knowledge about non-humans into something meaningful for humans? So don't we also have to rethink uh, the notion of the political that comes along with the idea of a decentered human um, as opposed to the anthropos of the anthropocene, if you will? Yeah, I mean, excellent question. When we were talking about the quality of relationality, so, and the, the one thing that I'm quite curious about is making claims on the narration of certain epistemic achievements or knowledge claims or what have you. Um, you can draw a lot of different consequences from a certain scientific observation. And the one that I keep thinking about is the one that is in this book by Bentley Allen, where he's talking about how when when the nuclear bomb was, you know, invented, that at least according to him, the sort of takeaway narrative from that was that, oh, my God, we're the most masterful over nature. We can even do the controlled release of energy from, a, you know, this atom. Like, oh, we are just, you know, it increased this human hubris, let's say or not American or European hubris that is just fueling that image. And, and that's one narration of it. But why didn't we also have the narration or why wasn't it a narration that, holy cow, look at this extremely dangerous, destructive thing we've just invented. We know what the consequences are. Isn't this a moment of humility? Do you know what I mean? Um, and maybe that's very naive what I'm saying, but I think that the way we narrate the consequences of certain events, certain technological developments, etc., is actually quite crucial. And to me, that's where it's not about just how things hang together. It's also about like narrating that the quality of that hanging together. We're situated in a distributed way. Um, we're both in our embodied, you know, material kind of like uh, <laughs> meat sack, if you wanted to use the cyber feminist sort of term. But operationally, we're connected to, I don't even know where, you know, we don't know, it depends where you go, but we're connected to all these things. That means that we're not just localized where we actually are phenomenally localized. So that's where I think this question of how do we, you know, negotiate knowledge that, um, which is why I wouldn't say that I was like criticizing scientific images of totality. I'm, I think they're absolutely necessary. It's more about grasping what their limitations are how they can be used, you know, like what do we learn from them, but not like fetishizing them nor demeaning them. Uh, I think they're actually, they're achievements, <laughs> in fact. So it was less of a criticism, but it is to say that we can see all these, and I think this happens with a lot of people that are invested in climate activism, is this kind of frustration about, we know a lot of stuff. We, we even have a lot of forecasts that are very bad, and you don't need to be 
deeply involved in the discourse to know that publicly available, very popular information knows we're on a really bad course. And still that knowledge doesn't translate into action. And partly, yes, there are power dynamics and economic interests that are making it so. But I also think that just having knowledge doesn't teach you what exactly you need to do. We may have these meta policy ideas, which are absolutely necessary, like stop fossil fuels, don't dig it out of the ground sort of thing. Yes. But then on other levels, we like, I don't know what to do sometimes when I get a piece of information that you know ought to be radically transforming things, but you don't necessarily know what to do. Bruno Latour and others um, have presented the corona crisis as a rehearsal or a test for the coming crises connected to climate change and ecocide. And in fact, the corona crisis also seems to offer itself as a miniature model to study the relationship between scientific fact, ethical considerations, social measures, and individual action, and in a nascent state um, still. So to me, the scientific and the manifest image of the virus kind of co-shaped one another in a very short time, um, and if I may say so, also in a, in a global scale. Um, so the know-how of the measures kind of preceded the scientific knowledge about the pathogen and the illness at many times. Um, so in absence of, an, of a tried and tested operational principle, individuals and representatives had to move through unknown territories, so to speak. So do you have any thoughts about this, um, about the developments of the last weeks and months? And did um, this experience change your way of thinking about the relation between scientific and manifest images but also maybe about the notion of navigation, um, which was key to some of your writings. Right. No, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting way to frame it, like the, the, the manifest image. I'm glad you really pointed that out because I don't think I was highlighting that enough, that the manifest image in this case preceded the scientific image in how you saw it. And I think that's important because what I didn't stress is that there's not really a hierarchy between the two. And that's typical... Assumption, let's say, when you start talking about scientific and manifest images, like, oh, we're just supposed to be uh, blindly, you know, taking in all these facts and being transformed and it doesn't go. It's a two-way street. It's a feedback dynamic between. So that's really great that you that you pointed that. And of course, that affects the production of the knowledge that contribute this kind of a perspectival knowledge. I mean, I think that there's obviously things that are similar about how we imagine climate emergency to be. And there are ways that it's very different in the COVID situation. Obviously, the two are on a very large scale. They're happening on a large scale. Um, I don't know. Intuitively, I would say that I think the risks in climate catastrophe are going to be much more localized, if I'm honest, at least at the beginning. There are regions in the world that are like explicitly under existential. And I mean by that, not like... <laughs> Like geographically, there will be no more Maldives or something like this. So I think that that acuteness and the permanence of it, you know, that's the other thing that's quite different in climate versus the COVID situation. At some point, and with whatever degree of destruction, and we're basically seeing this comparative governance <laughs> in action at this point, but it will pass. And that is something very different about climate emergency is not passing. It's accelerating, it's getting more acute, and it's not going to pass. And so that's where I, I am a bit skeptical about drawing that analogy. Um, even though, yes, for sure, it did prove that on a moment's notice, people could stop regular behavior. But I think it's also very different when we know there's a time limit on it. Even if it's a year, even if it's a year and a half, that's still a time limit. I think with a climate emergency, we are talking about like, there has to be, you know, generational temporalities at work. And so there's these discrepancies that make me uncomfortable to do an absolute comparison, even though there are, yes, things you could pick out, out of it. For me, the corona revealed a lot of things that we have been saying in the ecological discourse. And it is not new, and it is another dimension, but it revealed the crisis we had. And I want to go back to the last term that you introduced in your lecture, that of uncertainty, that for me 
is uh, a term that you refer to concerning scientific findings also on ecological development and climate change and also how the extreme right uses the uncertainty in order to say that all this is actually not happening. But we have now still an extreme situation on the virus concerning uncertainty. We really experience at the moment what it is to live in absolute uncertainty in regards to a natural phenomenon. So for me, there is a continuation or a comparison there. And with Max, we have been discussing now, since Corona came up, uh, the epistemological crisis that revealed itself with the fact that there is every couple of weeks there were new findings but findings that uh, every couple of weeks were then also taking back that in a way assured us culture scientists that we were always criticizing positivism that there is limits to it and of course this also might bring us back to the question of the human How can we think ourselves in a world where there is limits to the knowledge we can have of it? When I think about the, the risks that are ahead, right, because I think the 21st century is probably the riskiest one. From a human perspective, it's going to be very risky. If we're going to ambition towards a more equitable space, if planetarity is to make any sort of claims on a program of equality, then it needs to deal with risks. And those need to be socialized. Those need to be evenly distributed because they are just so asymmetric at this point. And that's, I realize that's like probably the reason why uh, I'm not in politics because that's not a, it's not a sexy sell. I mean, who wants to go in here about probability modeling uh, these things is not a sell, but these are, I think these are actually like really important questions that would have a huge impact. And I would really be advocating for more thought in this direction Because it's not something that's going to go away. And I think a lot of the right wing is having a lot of success because they sell in very simplified narratives. There's someone or some one thing to blame for whatever crisis. And it's completely false. It's dangerous. And it's all about selling comforts of certainty. Because if you can blame one thing, then you can at least have the certainty that that thing is being blamed. And that is, it's, I mean, we just know it's categorically false. As uh, how you just said, it will be one of the most dangerous centuries that we're in, in an incredible speed, in a speed that we try to enforce to ourselves. And of course, that's why this moment you said in the beginning of your lecture is also a transformative one, um, a transformative that we hopefully will use, not in a dystopic way, but we hopefully will use, as you say, by learning how to care about and how to care for and redistributing this risk. Yes, I think this would wrap it up. It was a wonderful discussion. Thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, chatting with you both. Goodbye, Patricia. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patricia. <laughs> Future. Future.